Well, turn with me to Isaiah chapter 11, and while you're finding Isaiah 11, let's go to the Lord in prayer just for a moment. Our Father, we come to you tonight so thankful for a, a full and rich Lord's Day that we've enjoyed. And now to look at one of the premier passages in all of the Bible on the rule of Jesus Christ on this earth. What a way to end the day. What a privilege. What a joy. Lord, I pray that our hearts would be turned to Christ. I pray that our affections would be turned to the glories of our God. That you would teach us obedience. That we might live holy lives in light of the soon coming of Christ. We thank you for this Christmas season. And while this isn't officially part of our Christmas preaching series, we continue to focus on Christ in the millennium. What a glorious day that will be. May our hearts be thrilled by the truths you present tonight. And we pray in Christ's name. Amen. Isaiah 11, verse 1. Then a shoot will spring from the stem of Jesse, and a branch from his roots will bear fruit. The Spirit of Yahweh will rest on him, the Spirit of wisdom and understanding, the Spirit of counsel and might, the Spirit of knowledge and the fear of Yahweh. And he will delight in the fear of Yahweh, and he will not judge by what his eyes see, nor render a decision by what his ears hear. But with righteousness he will judge the poor and decide with uprightness for the afflicted of the earth. And he will strike the earth with the rod of his mouth, and with the breath of his lips he will put the wicked to death. Also, righteousness will be the belt about his loins, and faithfulness the belt about his waist. And the wolf will dwell with the lamb, and the leopard will lie down with the young goat, and the calf and the young lion and the fatling together, and the young boy will lead them. Also, the cow and the bear will graze, their young will lie down together, And the lion will eat straw like the ox. And the nursing baby will play by the hole of the cobra. And the weaned child will put his hand on the viper's den. They will do no evil nor act corruptly in all my holy mountain. For the earth will be full of the knowledge of Yahweh as the waters cover the sea. Then it will be in that day that the nations will seek the root of Jesse who will stand as a standard for the peoples and his resting place will be glorious. Then it will be in that day that the Lord will again acquire the second time with his hand the remnant of his people who will remain from Assyria, Egypt, Pathras, Ethiopia, Elam, Shinar, Hamath, and from the coastlands of the sea. And he will lift up a standard for the nations and assemble the banished ones of Israel and will gather the scattered of Judah from the four corners of the earth. Then the jealousy of Ephraim will depart and those who assail Judah will be cut off. Ephraim will not be jealous of Judah and Judah will not assail Ephraim. And they who swoop down on the slopes of the Philistines on the west, together they will plunder the sons of the east. They will stretch out their hands over Edom and Moab and the sons of Ammon will obey them. And Yahweh will devote to destruction the tongue of the sea of Egypt and he will wave his hand over the river with his scorching wind And he will strike it into seven streams and make men walk over dry shod. And there will be a highway from Assyria for the remnant of his people who will remain, just as there was for Israel in the day that they came up out of the land of Egypt. Now since this series of messages on the Old Testament witnesses to the coming millennium, this is necessarily focused on demonstrating that These texts do, in fact, point to a future intermediate kingdom of Christ. Before I dive into Isaiah 11, kind of headlong here, I want to deal particularly with the issue of verse 4. But with righteousness he will judge the poor and decide with uprightness for the afflicted of the earth, and he will strike the earth with the rod of his mouth, and with the breath of his lips he will put the wicked to death. I want to just take a, a few moments and make a theological point here, our Amillennial brothers who believe that Christ is reigning over his kingdom now only from heaven and that the next thing to happen in the end times is the return of Christ in the final state of perfection, they have to deal with verse 4 because it's decidedly very not final state-like. 
Some amillennial theologians view verse 4 as fulfilled now in the church age with people recognizing their poverty of spirit. And then the rest of verse 4 then refers to the second coming judgments. Our beloved brother John Calvin, he spiritualized the poor in verse 4 as those in need of salvation during the church age. Well, there's two challenges to this view. First of all, and we've noted this in previous messages, this view only works if you spiritualize the first line of verse 4 and then take literally lines 2, 3, and 4. It's very arbitrary and it smells a lot like letting the theological system rule the text rather than the other way around. And the second problem with this is the immediate context of Isaiah 11 all concerns a time after the return of Christ, not before or during. And I think we'll demonstrate this the rest of this message. I've mentioned in previous messages the eminent Dr. Cornelius Venema. He wrote the landmark amillennial work on eschatology called The Promise of the Future. <clears throat> and as you would expect in a comprehensive work on eschatology, over 500 pages, he references Isaiah 11 numbers of times, and in several cases he makes his position very clear. Now, I would judge his position to be pretty representative of most, if not all, amillennialists. There's really only two options for this text. It's either the millennium or it's the eternal state. Those are the only two options. In one mention, Dr. Venema cites Isaiah 11, 6 through 9, the wolf will dwell with the lamb and so forth, as speaking about a time during the heavens, new heavens and new earth, the final state. In the second mention of the same verses, he says these are symbolic of Christ having overcome his enemies. In the third mention, Venema states that Isaiah 6, 6 through 10 is what dispensationalists often cite as predictions of the millennium, and I would agree with him on that. And then he goes on in that same section to give a short exposition of Isaiah 11, 6 through 10. And he says, quote, The prophet describes a beautiful picture of the reign of the shoot from Jesse, this reign will be characterized by universal peace and tranquility. Again, eternal state. In the fourth mention, he interprets Isaiah 11, 6 through 10, the wolf dwell with the lamb and so forth, and he makes his position very clear. These verses might better be referred to the final state of the new heavens and new earth than the millennium. It better describes the universal peace and knowledge of the Lord that will characterize the final state in the consummation than the earthly and Davidic kingdom of dispensational expectation. Now, why do I bring this up? And Dr. Venema is a wonderful, godly man who loves the Lord, but we're disagreeing uh, in love and in humility on this. I bring this up because nowhere, not one place in all of his mentions of Isaiah 11, nor anywhere else in his 520 plus page book, on all of the end times, does he ever mention verse 4? He's two verses away. He's in your Bible. He's like an inch away from it. And he never mentions verse 4. Now, some might say this is an argument from silence. In this case, though, the silence is pretty deafening because this is the context. To suddenly jump for a moment to the church age when the questionable symbol for the lost, the poor, and then to momentarily to the judgment of the second coming of Christ, and yet have all of verses 1 through 3 and 5 through 16 clearly about the intermediate kingdom, that's very unlikely. Now, the rod of judgment in verse 4 could reference the judgment of the world at the second coming of Christ. That is certainly the imagery associated with the second coming. Psalm 2.8, 2 Thessalonians 2.8, Revelation 19.15 all have this imagery. But because verse 4 is placed in the overall context of the nature of Christ's rule, it's much better to see this as the, the characterization of the reign of the king, and we'll come back to that. But what about verses 6 through 9? The wolf dwelling with the lamb and so forth. That certainly sounds like final state material, eternal state material. <clears throat> John Calvin attributed verses 6 through 9 to the final state, and it certainly could fit the final state. But there's something mentioned in verses 6 through 9 that makes it much more likely to be millennium. And that is the three times mentioned presence of children. Now there's no text which indicates that the final state will not have children. 
But Jesus indicated that resurrected saints will not marry. And we already know that there will be survivors of the Great Tribulation. They'll be procreating. So the presence of children is a, a huge mark in favor of the millennium. And when you place that in the immediate context of verse 4, which is clearly millennial, then verses 6 through 9 must also be speaking of an intermediate kingdom. So I wanted to just clarify that point. You can't just decide according to your theological system, oh, this line fits what I believe here, this line fits what I believe, and just put together kind of a jigsaw puzzle. You have to take the context. So let's look together at this glorious text, which tells us of the millennial kingdom of Christ on earth. After the rapture and resurrection event, followed by seven years of tribulation with Antichrist rising to power, Isaiah 11 picks up at the return of Christ to the earth to set up his thousand-year millennial kingdom. The story is focused on the returning king, and it has obvious implications and proofs for the deity of Christ. But this passage that we just read is very much concerned with Jesus the man, the human that God promises in the Old Testament that a human king would come from heaven to earth. First to be born in Bethlehem, first to die, to be raised from the dead, ascend into heaven, and then return as a conquering human king. And as the coming human king, of course, all that he does will be perfect, and he will be the ultimate man in everything that he does in every way that he rules And so I want to keep our focus on that main event, the fact that Jesus himself is returning as a man. And I'd like to show you four descriptions of Jesus the man. And this is really the focus of Isaiah 11. I'll list them right now and then we'll go through them together. Jesus is the ultimate human comeback story. That's the first description. Jesus is the ultimate human king. Jesus is the ultimate human protector. And Jesus is the ultimate human father. So comeback story, king, protector, and father. First of all, Jesus is the ultimate human comeback story. After the failure of the first king of Israel, King Saul, a man that was only outwardly qualified as a big tall warrior, he was the type of man the people wanted. The prophet Samuel went to a family in the foothills of Bethlehem to anoint the king that God wanted. A humble boy who loved and trusted the Lord, David. God worked mightily in David, the great slayer of Goliath. The people used to sing that Saul had slain his thousands and David his ten thousands. David was a fierce warrior by day and a writer of psalms to the Lord by night. He was, as God called him, a man after God's own heart. God made an astounding promise to King David. He promised him in 2 Samuel 7, When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up one of your seed after you, who will come forth from your own body, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. David has a son, Solomon. Solomon comes after David, but he wouldn't be the chosen son. Certainly he was wise, he was wealthy, he loved the Lord. As scripture says, but toward the end of his days, he mixed his love for the Lord with idol worship, turning to the idols of his hundreds of wives, and he led Israel back into idol worship. His son Rehoboam couldn't hold the kingdom together for even two years before civil war broke out and the kingdom divided. The kings descended from David, who now ruled the southern kingdom, ruled with varying degrees of effectiveness, A couple of faithful kings emerged along the way, but not too many. And eventually the moral and the spiritual decay and degradation of Judah was such that God would decimate them by the invading power of Babylon. As we spoke about this morning, in 586 BC, the third and final invasion by Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon resulted in the complete destruction of Jerusalem and the end of any organized nation of Israel on the earth. The last official king of Judah, Zedekiah, he was captured. He had his eyes put out only after having to watch his own sons be executed in front of him. The king before him, Jehoiakim, had been captured by Babylon when he was 18 years old. And after 37 years in a Babylonian prison, he was let out and allowed to sit with the Babylonian king and given an allowance like a little child. And so that ended the mighty line of David. 
It was just a, a dead stump cut down from the colossal tree it had once been, but the stump wasn't completely dead. Over 500 years later, in the same town of Bethlehem that David, the son of Jesse, was born, a baby's cry was heard in the humble stable, what verse 1 calls a shoot from the stem or the stump of Jesse, a tiny little green sprig of life from the dead stump. Jesus Christ, the little sprig, the little twig. Both verse 1 and verse 10 emphasize Jesse, David's father. Now this is very important because in the books of Kings, successive kings were compared to David by referring to their father, David. But the reference to Messiah as being from Jesse is that Jesse is another David. The, 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 Jesus is rather another David not just another in a long line of descendants of David but another man just like David only much better through the prophet Isaiah God predicted the downfall of the house of David God told King Ahaz in Isaiah seven seventeen, Yahweh will bring on you on your people and on your father's house days which have never come since the day that Ephraim separated from Judah the king of Assyria But the prophet also predicted the glorification of the Davidic line. Chapter 1 speaks of a restored royal leadership in Jerusalem someday. So there's this tension between the predicted downfall of the Davidic kings and the predicted glorification of the Davidic kings. And Isaiah 11 answers this tension. Yes, the Davidic line and the Davidic kingdom is just a stump. That's the downfall But from the stump emerges a sprig, a shoot, new life and hope. Or if I can put it this way, Jesus Christ is a sprig that would become a twig, that would become the branch that would die on a tree for the sins of so many that he might be given the name that is above every name. And the text here says that the branch will bear fruit. He will reproduce, or as Hebrews 2 says, that he will bring many sons to glory. That's the ultimate comeback story. You think about this. Why was Jesus able to do this? Why was he able to accomplish what the son of Solomon, Rehoboam, Abijah, Asa, Jehoshaphat, Jehoram, Ahaziah, Joash, Amaziah, Azariah, Jotham, Ahaz, Hezekiah, Manasseh, Ammon, Josiah, Jehoahaz, Jehoiakim, Jehoiakim, Zedekiah, why could Jesus do what none of them could accomplish? Why could he? All of them were shoots of Jesse also. All of them came from David. What was different about Jesus? Well, verse 10 tells us Jesus was not only the shoot from Jesse, he is the root of Jesse. He is the root cause of his own family tree, He is the creator God. He is sovereign over the universe and over time and over creation and over his own genealogy. Jesus said it himself in Revelation 22, 16, I am the root and the descendant of David. Jesus is the ultimate human comeback story. It's the second description. Jesus is the ultimate human king. He's the ultimate human king. In verses two through five, we see the character of Messiah's reign on the earth So what will his rule be like as the ultimate human king? Well, in this particular text, we see two qualities we could identify. A spirit-led rule and a just rule. A spirit-led rule and a just rule. First of all, we see a spirit-led rule in verse 2. The spirit of Yahweh will rest on him. The spirit of wisdom and understanding. The spirit of counsel and might. The spirit of knowledge and the fear of Yahweh. Now, like The kings Saul and David, the first two kings of Israel, the coming of the Spirit, would specify that he is the one chosen by God. That was the the significance of the Spirit. King Saul had the Spirit taken away from him because of his unfaithfulness. And don't think of that in New Testament terms. This isn't about salvation or not salvation. It's about the empowering of the Holy Spirit to rule. David sinned against the Lord. And in Psalm 51, he implored God, take not your Holy Spirit from me. Not in the sense of don't take away my salvation, but in the sense of don't take away my power to rule, my power to reign. 
Verse 2 speaks of these gifts given to Messiah by the Spirit. Now, as fully God, Messiah already possesses all of these attributes. But as fully man, the Holy Spirit gives these attributes to Messiah. And this occurred, as we spoke of earlier, at the baptism of Jesus, His first coming, the official empowering by the Holy Spirit for ministry. What are the gifts? There's seven of them. We'll put them together in one and then three pairs. The Spirit of the Lord resting upon Him. This speaks of permanent favor, permanent empowerment. It'll never go away. The Spirit of wisdom and understanding. These are His judicial and ruling attributes. His ability to be all-wise, all-knowing, all-understanding. The Spirit of counsel and might. This is His ability to strategize and, and to show military strength as the commander of the Lord's army. The spirit of knowledge and fear of Yahweh. He has complete intimate knowledge of God and total loyalty to God as his perfect image and representative on earth. Now, we're beginning to see, obviously in Isaiah 11, that Isaiah is projecting the reader to a time beyond the first coming and beyond the second coming. This is very clear now. The first quality is a spirit-led rule. The second quality of Christ's rule will be a just rule. Verse 3, he will delight in the fear of Yahweh. This is the second time that the idea of fearing the Lord has come up. In John 17, Jesus asserts boldly that he glorified the Father perfectly while he was on earth. The only human being to ever give God perfect honor and glory through his perfect life and perfect obedience. And now Jesus will perfectly honor and glorify God by his perfect justice on the earth. Second part of verse 3. And he will not judge by what his eyes see, nor render a decision by what his ears hear. It is right and proper for us to hold in high esteem the judges appointed in our land, we may not always or even very frequently agree with their decisions, but the position they hold is one of gravity, one of weightiness, one of importance. They literally hold the fate of men and women in their hands, in their decision-making power. They have to take the evidence that's presented to them and either manage the presentation of that evidence to a jury or make a decision of guilt or innocence on their own. It's very weighty, it's very heavy. These human judges have to rely on what their eyes see and ears hear. But true justice will always prevail when the sovereign, all-knowing, all-wise God is the judge of the earth who pierces to the very heart of a man instantly. Listen, you can decide a lot of cases quickly when it takes three minutes for a trial, one minute for everybody to file in, one minute for the judge to say, here's my decision, and one minute for everybody to leave. You can go through a lot of justice. Listen to the Apostle John's comment about Jesus in John 2, 25. And because he had no need that anyone bear witness concerning man, for he himself knew what was in a man. His just reign is described in detail in the verse that we spoke of at the beginning, verse 4, but with righteousness he will judge the poor and decide with uprightness for the afflicted of the earth. And he will strike the earth with the rod of his mouth and with the breath of his lips he will put the wicked to death. The poor speaks in the Old Testament of the insignificant, those who don't have a step up in life, they have no advantages. The afflicted, this is a word that means the humiliated, the oppressed, the lowest of the low. For the first time in history, the lesser of humanity will have an advocate who will actually do something about it. The lesser won't be taken advantage of, but they'll be protected, they'll be loved, they'll be cherished, they'll be cared for. There will be no inequity on the earth. The second half of verse 4, as I mentioned earlier, seems to be hearkening back to the justice with which Christ begins his reign. The first order of business in the new world order will be to kill the wicked. It's a very similar text in Revelation 19.15. He will rule them with a rod of iron, speaking of the return of Christ. And it does seem from the books of Matthew and from Daniel that there will be an initial time of cleaning up the earth, executing justice on the surviving unbelievers of the Great Tribulation. But as I mentioned earlier, in context, this really describes primarily the character of his reign. 
not just the initial cleanup of planet Earth. And his just reign will be characterized by being a king, a judge, who acts. How? In verse 5, also righteousness will be the belt about his loins and faithfulness the belt about his waist. This sounds familiar to us, doesn't it? You hear the armor of God from Ephesians 6 here. When we're told to put on the full armor of God in Ephesians 6, and we see this imagery taken here from Isaiah 11, we're putting on Christ-likeness, that He is righteous and faithful. Therefore, we are to be righteous and faithful. There are qualities that are so much a part of His character that He's pictured as wearing them like clothing. He wears these belts. A belt indicated readiness for action. His righteousness is a righteousness that does things, not just knows things, that acts in justice. What a human king. A spirit-led reign and a just reign. Can you imagine that today? Can you imagine a governor or a president faced with a decision and he has a press conference and he says, if you'll excuse me, I need to go into a back room and I need to consult with the God of the universe. And I need to pray for the Spirit of God to lead me that I might make an exact and a just and a correct decision. We would be flabbergasted. And he'd be out of office because he'd be voted out. But that will be normal. That will be the norm. There's a third description of Jesus, the man. Jesus is the ultimate human protector. He's the ultimate human protector. How is Jesus going to protect humanity in his kingdom? Well, one of the ways is he's going to begin the process of reversing the curse on mankind and on creation. This is not a full reversal yet. It's not until the casting of Satan into the lake of fire at the end of the millennium and until the great white throne judgment of all the unbelievers of all the ages at the end of the millennium and until the creation of the new heavens and the new earth that scripture finally says there will no longer be any curse. Revelation 22.3 What is the curse? Let's just be reminded of this from Genesis. Because of the serpent's deception and because of Adam's sin, the serpent was cursed. On your belly you will go, and dust you will eat all the days of your life, Genesis 3.14. And Satan, who took the form of a certain serpent, was cursed. Genesis 3.15 says that the offspring of the woman would crush his head in a mortal wound someday, and that's fulfilled at the cross. The woman is cursed in that she shall bring children into the world in pain and anguish. She'll have a propensity to be controlling and manipulative, desiring to control her husband and those in authority. Genesis 3.16, the man will be cursed in that he'll toil all the days of his life to make a hard living, only to be buried in the ground that he worked. And all humanity will be cursed in that instead of living forever on a pristine earth, we die. And the ground is cursed. Nature itself is cursed. It brings forth thorns and thistles, and with difficulty men will extract food from the ground. Later in Genesis 9... We see the impact on the animal world as well when God tells Noah after the flood that the fear of you and the terror of you will be on every beast of the earth. As it is now, there's a, there's a tenuous and difficult relationship between man and animal and between animal and animal. The predator-prey relationship commences as part of the curse. It's now a necessary dynamic for survival. Interestingly, in Revelation 6... The fourth seal judgment of the Great Tribulation includes a worldwide epidemic of wild animals attacking humans. This is a heightening of this war, a heightening of this enmity, this distance between men and animals. Even today, animals that kill human beings on a regular basis include wolves, Australian dingoes, bulls, black widows, brown recluses, bears, sharks, leopards, cows, Cows, can you believe that? 22 people a year. Horses, ants, bees, lions, jellyfish, tigers, deer kill 120 people a year. Pet dogs, cape buffaloes, elephants, crocodiles, hippos kill 3,000 people a year. Scorpions, snakes, flies, and at the top of the list, those little demons, mosquitoes, kill more people than any other animal. Romans 8 says that the whole creation groans waiting for the restoration of the Lord. 
And this restoration won't happen until God's redemptive plan for humanity is, is completed. Jesus is going to be the ultimate protector by partially reversing the consequences of the curse on humanity and on nature. The, the curse on humanity will be partially lifted during the millennial kingdom. Most people are resurrected, glorified believers at the beginning. The earth will then be repopulated by the saved survivors of the Great Tribulation. But Jesus will provide protection, as we see in verses 6 through 9. The predator-prey relationship will end. They'll be reconciled. Verse 6 joins animals in pairs of normally wild and normally tame. And the wolf will dwell with the lamb. The leopard will lie down with the young goat. And the calf and the young lion and the fatling together. And the young boy will lead them. There is a change of physiology in the animal world. All animals will now be vegetarians. I believe return to the state they were in before the curse. And definitely before the flood. Verse 7. Also the cow and the bear will graze. Their young will lie down together. And the lion will eat straw like the ox. And in verse 8, the nursing baby will play by the hole of the cobra and the weaned child will put his hand on the viper's den. I still remember being about three years old. It's, about, it's one of my earliest memories. And my parents and I lived in Central America. My parents were on the mission field there and we lived in a house that was actually fairly close to the beach. And I, I'll never forget this. It's burned in my memory and in one of my fingers. I, I found a hole in the sand. And when you're three what do you do with a hole in the sand? You stick your hand into it. And I came up with the biggest crab you ever saw in your life, and I still remember my own scream, to my own shame. Now, today, I would have dropped it in a pot of boiling water while I melted the butter, but that's, I couldn't do that when I was three. It was terrifying. But this is a picture of the reversal of the curse. Remember, God pronounced to Satan the serpent, in Genesis 3.15, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise you on the head and you shall bruise him on the heel. Now, the primary and the most important theological understanding of this is this is the very first prophecy of Messiah. And the battle at the cross, which Christ would win in crushing Satan's head, a mortal wound to Satan's rule of sinful man in the sinful world. But there's a clear connection here in verse 8. The offspring of woman, the nursing baby, and the offspring of the serpent, the cobra, the viper. This isn't just a neat thing that children can safely play with snakes. More importantly, this is showing that Genesis 3.15 is being reversed. Part of the curse is that mankind's original privilege given by God, the privilege to rule and subdue the earth, this has been severely marred and, and hampered. Genesis 1.28, you recall, God blessed them and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the sky and over every living thing that creeps on the earth. This subjugation of nature to mankind is being restored as well. The rule of mankind over the earth. Did you catch this? Verse 6 speaks of the wolves and the lambs and the leopards and the goats and the calves and the lions and a young boy shall lead them. Mankind's original purpose was to exercise dominion over the earth. And now in the return to this, even a little child will say to the wolf or to the lamb or to the leopard or to the calf or to the lion, come walk with me. And they will. Can you imagine just a, a little squirt, a little guy going up to an 800 pound lion and saying, come walk. And the lion gets up and just goes with him. What a beautiful thing. In fact, speaking of children, the, the sinful fallen world has always been the hardest on children. Children die at birth. They're being aborted by the millions. They fall prey to disease and starvation. But did you notice that children are mentioned three times in verses 6 through 9? Complete safety of children, complete safety of infants. In fact, Isaiah 65 points out that no infant will die in childbirth anymore. And then in verse 9, we get a summary of verses 6 through 8. The new king of the earth is the ultimate human protector. They will do no evil nor act corruptly in all my holy mountain. Why? 
for the earth will be full of the knowledge of Yahweh as the waters cover the sea. This is an important distinction. The Hebrew language doesn't distinguish between knowledge that's just the gathering of facts and knowing someone as a personal acquaintance. The two are the same. The earth being filled with the knowledge of the Lord means the earth will be filled with people who know the Lord and know that He's ruling. Jesus is the ultimate human protector. Here's a fourth description. Jesus is the ultimate human father. He's the ultimate human father. We saw last time in Isaiah 9, 7, Messiah is called the everlasting father. This is not to identify Jesus as God the Father to mix up the Trinity, but what Jesus assumes as the role of Father on the earth. Not just a father, but a promise-keeping father. A father who longs to gather his children together. This is the Father's heart that Jesus has. When Jesus was on earth the first time, he wept over Jerusalem. And he said, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, who kills the prophets and stones those who were sent to her. How often I wanted to gather your children together the way a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, and you did not want it. Matthew twenty-three thirty-seven. But now, many tens of thousands, perhaps, of Jews will have looked upon the one they have pierced. They will have repented. And what will Messiah on earth do as their father? He's going to keep a promise. He's going to keep a promise. In Matthew 24, 31, Jesus said that after he returns, he's going to do something. Matthew 24, 31, and he will send forth his angels with a great trumpet and they will gather together his elect from the four winds from one end of the sky to the other. This is not speaking of the rapture of the church. That was seven years earlier. This is speaking of the gathering of all of his people together. Jesus promised, I will bring you home. Now, Isaiah, Isaiah makes it very clear that Gentiles who have been grafted into the branch of Israel, as Romans 11 says, that they'll be welcomed as Christ's people as well, obviously. But I should note that Isaiah 11 makes a very clear distinction between God's people who are Gentiles and God's people who are Israel, all saved by the glorious salvation of the cross, all equal spiritually, but there's a distinction nonetheless. First, we see the Gentiles in verse 10. Then it will be in that day that the nations will seek the root of Jesse who will stand as a standard for the peoples and his resting place will be glorious. The Apostle Paul comments on this in Romans fifteen twelve. Isaiah says, There shall come the root of Jesse and he who arises to rule over the Gentiles and him shall the Gentiles hope. And Isaiah says, His resting place will be glorious. What can the Gentiles, that's you, what can you look forward to seeing? The glorious resting place, the residing place of Messiah. You think, well, what's that going to be like? Well, you can read all about it in Ezekiel 40 through 48. The detailed description of the gorgeous, majestic, and massive, new, holy, millennial temple of God. Ezekiel 43 Beginning in verse 2 says, Behold, the glory of the God of Israel was coming from the way of the east, and his voice was like the sound of many waters. And the earth shone with his glory, and it was like the appearance of the vision which I saw, like the vision which I saw when he came to bring the city to ruin. And the visions were like the vision which I saw by the river Kibar. And I fell on my face, and the glory of Yahweh came into the house by the way of the gate, facing toward the east. And the Spirit lifted me up and brought me into the inner court, And behold, the glory of Yahweh filled the house. Why would the glory of God go through a gate? Because he's walking. This is the return of Christ into his own place. And what does verse 10 say? His resting place will be glorious. That's what you have to look forward to. We have much to look forward to as Gentiles. But Jesus is a promise-keeping, everlasting Father. Once before, in a very limited sense, God brought a remnant back to Israel after the exile. Now he's going to do it again, this time for good. Verse 11, then it will be in that day that the Lord will again acquire the second time with his hand the remnant of his people who will remain from Assyria, Egypt, Pathras, Ethiopia, Elam, Shinar, Hamath, and from the coastlands of the sea. Christ will recover the Jews. And this is representative of saying basically from all directions. He'll gather them from all four corners of the earth as as he says in Matthew. 
This includes major regions that Jews have either fled to or been taken captive in. Assyria to the northeast, Egypt to the southwest, Pathras, the upper Nile region in Egypt, Ethiopia, south in Africa, Elam, east of Assyria, Shinar in Babylon, Hamath, far north of Israel, and the coastlands or the islands of the sea. This is a, a Hebraic way of saying everywhere else, the farthest places you can imagine. In other words, no pathway to Israel will be blocked. You recall that during the Great Tribulation, saved Jews are pictured as a woman, a woman who gave birth to Messiah, but the woman is in danger. And in Revelation 12, 6, then the woman fled into the wilderness where she had a place prepared by God so that there she would be nourished for 1,260 days. This is the second half of the Great Tribulation. And now they can all come out of hiding. They can all come home. And Jesus Christ, the Father of Israel, will go all out to gather his people. Verse 12, and he will lift up a standard for the nations and assemble the banished ones of Israel and will gather the scattered of Judah from the four corners of the earth. This standard, this is a flag. This is a picture of Jesus Christ standing on the mountain, waving the biggest flag you can imagine, saying, this is where home is. Look here, look to the banner, look to the standard, look to the signal, look to the flag. He's going all out. The formerly splintered, divided kingdom is now united. Verse 13, the jealousy of Ephraim will depart. Those who assail Judah will be cut off. That's northern kingdom and, and southern kingdom. Ephraim will not be jealous of Judah. and Judah will not assail Ephraim. There's, there's a, 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 a unity now. There's no more aggravation, no more provocation from traditional enemies. Verse 14, the Philistines... Edom, Moab, the sons of Ammon, they're all going to obey Israel. And the way home will be made easy to travel. And Yahweh will devote to destruction the sea, the tongue of the sea of Egypt. And he will wave his hand over the river with his scorching wind. He will strike it into seven streams and make men walk over dry shod. And there will be a highway from Assyria for the remnant of his people who will remain just as there was for Israel in the day that they came up out of the land of Egypt. Now, this is interesting. The river in verse 15, this is generally a, a technical reference to the Euphrates River in the Old Testament. Revelation 16 says that near the end of the Great Tribulation, God will dry up that river in preparation for a military force to come from the east to Israel, to Jerusalem, to the Battle of Armageddon. But it'll also serve to make the path easy for Jews to return home. But did you notice this? Verse 15 Yahweh will devote to destruction the tongue of the sea of Egypt. What is that? That is a reference to the Red Sea. Do you ever wish you could see the Red Sea part? Guess what? It's going to happen again. It's going to happen again. Can you imagine being a Jew, going home, going, I can't believe I'm walking through the Red Sea just like they did in Exodus. And as the banner is raised for the Jews to come home, for the Abrahamic covenant and the Davidic covenant and the new covenant with Israel to come to full, full fruition, who's going to help them? Who's going to help them get home? When Christ raises a standard for the nations, it seems to let the nations know that for the Jews, it's time to go home. Later on in Isaiah, there is what I think is one of the most touching and moving pictures in all the Bible of restored Jews as children. And it's certainly possible that many of them will be children. But in either case, Isaiah will picture them as those who are so revered by the Gentiles that the Gentiles will help them get home. And if some are children, Gentiles will help raise them. Isaiah 49, beginning in verse 22, thus says Lord Yahweh, Behold, I will lift up my hand to the nations and make high my standard to the peoples. And they will bring your sons in their bosom and your daughters will be lifted up on their shoulders. You can picture this. A little girl on a man's shoulders. Kings will be your guardians and their princesses, your nurses. They will bow down to you with their faces to the earth and lick the dust of your feet. And you will know that I am Yahweh. Those who hope in me will not be put to shame. Listen, the greatest of all the Gentiles will find it their fondest pleasure to serve the Lord by serving the Jew and possibly raising Jewish children. With such honor and reverence that the Gentile kings and queens 
are pictured as bowing down to lick the dust of the Jews' feet. Very different than today, isn't it? For me personally, I never want to be the one who says God is done with the nation of Israel. Scripture says it'll be my greatest honor to love them and to serve them. And Isaiah says that Gentiles will bring Jews home back in style. They'll bring them back home in style. Isaiah 66, 20, Then they shall bring all your brothers from all the nations as a grain offering to Yahweh on horses, in chariots, in litters, on mules and on camels to my holy mountain Jerusalem, says Yahweh, just as the sons of Israel bring their grain offering in a clean vessel to the house of Yahweh. And how will Jesus, the ultimate human father, how will he greet his beloved as they're coming from all directions, coming from the north and from the south and from the east and from the west? How will he greet them? How will he greet you? After century after century of uncertainty and national homelessness, and after seven years of God's judgment pouring out in cataclysmic calamity, the prophet Zechariah, or Zephaniah rather, he speaks of how Messiah will greet his people as they return. Zephaniah 3.17 Yahweh your God is in your midst. A mighty one who will save. This is the presence of Christ on earth. He will be joyful over you with gladness. He will be quiet in his love. He will rejoice over you with joyful singing. This is three responses, one after another. The first one, initial rejoicing, to delight in the object of your fondness. There's this initial, he will be joyful over you. Second response, giving comfort. He'll quiet you in his love. It's like he's saying, it's okay, you're home. Never for all eternity will you have to worry about this again. And the third response is celebration. This is a tremendous phrase. He will rejoice over you with joyful singing. The joyful singing part we get. But rejoice is a rich word that means to shout with singing and leaping for joy. Now, if I could put it this way, as supernaturally thrilling as it's going to be for you and for me to see Jesus Christ face to face. There's no comparison to how he will respond when he sees his people coming home. You think you're going to be excited? He will outdo you. Just as the father of the prodigal son was thrilled to see his son come home, in fact, initial rejoicing, giving comfort and celebration That's exactly the order of responses that Jesus himself told us about in the parable of the prodigal son. When the son came to his senses and wanted to return home, initial rejoicing, Luke 15, 20. So he rose up and came to his father, but while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him, giving comfort, Luke 15, 21, and the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son, But the father said to his slaves, quickly, bring out the best robe and put it on him and put a ring on his hand and sandals on his feet. It's as if the father said, it's okay, you're home. You never have to leave again. You're safe forever. Initial rejoicing, giving comfort. And third, celebration. Luke 15, 23, and bring the fattened calf, slaughter it, let us eat and celebrate. For this son of mine was dead and has come to life again. He is lost and has been found. And they began to celebrate. Now, I I don't want to stretch the point too much, but I do believe in Scripture, interpreting Scripture. And based on the context of Zephaniah 3.17 and the tremendous parallel with the parable of the prodigal son, it's reasonable to conclude that Jesus not only had in mind in the parable the salvation of individuals, but arguably, most importantly, the return of God's people to their home in repentance. Because the pattern is the same. Initial rejoicing, giving comfort, celebration. And of course, in the parable, Jesus is the Father who rejoices as people coming home. There's a small country in southern Africa called Eswatini. Eswatini, until 2018, you would have known it as Swaziland. Eswatini is a monarchy currently ruled by King Mswati III. 
It's not without problems. It's a very poor country. It's a diseased country. It's the absolute rule of the monarch, as you might expect, is often characterized by corruption, by oppression. But what's interesting about Eswatini, they renamed it that from Swaziland because all the citizens call it Eswatini, so they renamed it that. What's interesting is their national anthem. Their national anthem was adopted in 1968 when they became officially independent. And this could be the anthem of any nation in the coming millennial reign of Christ. Listen to the words of the national anthem of Eswatini. O Lord our God, bestower of the blessings of the Swazi, we give thee thanks for all our good fortune. We offer thanks and praise for our king and for our fair land, its hills and rivers. The blessings be on all rulers of our country. Might and power are thine alone. We pray thee to grant us wisdom without deceit or malice. Establish and fortify us, Lord eternal. Imagine a world filled with nations with that sentiment. It's coming. Isaiah 11 says it's coming. Our Father, we thank you for yet another passage. Time and time and time again. You are crying out to us that the kingdom is coming. The king is coming. We can't open our Bibles without finding some reference to the coming kingdom. We certainly can't peruse through the Old Testament without being saturated in the promises that Christ is returning. He will begin the process of reversing the curse on mankind. He will create the world as it was meant to be. I pray, Lord, for each person hearing this, that there is a sense of gratitude, a sense of excitement, a sense of anticipation a sense of being anxious for this to happen, of looking heavenward. In the meantime, though, you call us to be witnesses. You call us to be salt and light in a dying world. And I pray that we would be faithful to this, Lord, that we would be part of the grand, glorious, redemptive gospel work of introducing others to the King so that they might be part of the kingdom as well. Grant that our little body of believers here might be part of swelling the ranks of the millennial kingdom. We pray these things for the glory of the King. Amen.